This week on the show, we have running OpenBSD or NetBSD on FreeBSD using the grub 2 Beehive tool, Vermadon's FreeBSD story, thoughts on the OpenBSD desktop uh, usage, history of file tab info in the Unix directories, as well as multi-boot a Pinebook KDE Neon images and more in this week's episode of BSD. Now. BSD Now, episode 266, File Type History, recorded on the 3rd of October 2018. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And we're glad to have you this week with us. Uh, exciting headlines this week. Um, the one that we start off with is OpenBSD slash NetBSD on FreeBSD using Grub2 Beehive. This is a blog post by our uh, fellow co-contributor uh, or co-committer, Marius Saborski. Uh, we covered his blog a couple of times now, but uh, apparently he keeps blogging, so we might as well cover it a second time or well, no, many numbers. <laughs> new stuff. So yeah. uh, in particular, he says, when he was writing the blog post we covered previously about uh, how programs set the process title so that when you run top, it shows up something more informational than just the name of the binary, I needed a couple of virtual machines with different operating systems like OpenBSD, NetBSD, and Ubuntu. Uh, before that day, I mainly used FreeBSD and Windows with Beehive. I spent some time trying to uh, learn how to set up OpenBSD using Beehive and the UEFI, which is described in uh, on the wiki here. But I had numerous problems trying to get it to work, and then I discovered the older way of doing it with Grub2 Beehive, and that worked fine. Mm -hmm. So basically, Grub2 Beehive is a modified version of the Grub bootloader designed to preload everything uh, for the Beehive hypervisor. Uh, Grub supports most of the operating systems you might want to boot. You know, the Grub was originally written uh, 20 or so years ago uh, to let Linux people dual boot FreeBSD, actually. Yeah, and uh, now we're using it in reverse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you can use it to, to boot NetBSD, OpenBSD, or Ubuntu. So first, uh, you install the package, uh, which then you actually have a Grub2 Beehive command to run. Uh, and then you see when he ran it, he gets uh, the Grub test screen. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he can LS around and look at files on the host uh, and so on. So then he goes about and creates a volume, uh, either using a zvol or a file. Uh, and then he creates a mapping that defines here's what hard drive zero in the VM is and here's what hard drive one in the VM is. Uh, and then when you run Grub and you give it that mapping file, you can then ls and see the partitions and so on in the disk. The one that you need, yeah. Yeah, so then we can see in hard drive zero, uh, ms-dos partition number four, we can see the OpenBSD RAM disk with the BSD kernel and the 6.4 and so on. So he sets that as the root and loads the OpenBSD kernel uh, setting it to output to COM0 and boot from SD0A uh, and slash BSD and boot. And the system's now loaded the kernel. So then you start Beehive uh, again with the same name and it will uh, and point it to those two hard drives and it'll boot up. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And the terminal, it can. Um, the recommendation is from, from my side is that you put it in a, a TMUX so it can detach yeah. and attach it again. 
but yeah, this works in the basic. And then uh, he shows terms. how to use cat with it to basically allow you to, instead of having to interactively type those bunch of commands, you can just feed them in from a file or paste them all at once and have it run. And you can see you specify how much memory you want the beehive to have and so on, and you run it and uh, boom, you'll get your operating system of choice. Yeah, and that's pretty straightforward and the grub2beehive makes it actually easier for the, the first steps to, uh, because typically when you start beehive, it starts, runs the bootloader and then stops again. So that ties it together a little bit yeah. better. So um, if you can get the UEFI way to work, it's nicer because you have just this beehive command uh, with one extra parameter that specifies which firmware you want to use. Uh, and then it will actually boot the boot code that's inside the disk image uh, instead of using grub beehive on the external host. Huh, okay. I have not used UEFI with uh, beehive yeah. yet. So if you, use the, good... if you use the CSM firmware, it, you don't have to have UEFI in the image. So you can, you know, BIOS, uh, legacy boot a VM or you can UEFI boot it uh, with one of those two images and it lets you do it all with just the one single beehive command, which is much nicer than load the kernel and then exit. And then at some point, start beehive and, and start executing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. I will try this out uh, when I have uh, a need for another beehive. And yeah, you can see his Z-pool is not called tank, but Z-tank. There's this little difference there. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's cool. That's uh something to start off with if in the beehive and adventures and again he's added can, commenting to his blog so go comment yeah, perfect yeah so people yeah can leave comments and uh, uh yeah it's a nice way of running different operating systems on your freebsd or your beehive host in general okay next up uh, is my freebsd story from uh vermadon so we covered a couple of times his uh, blog posts um, that he did like a long uh, bit of tutorials but this time he's basically describing how he actually started off with uh, computing and BSD in particular. So it starts off with uh, you can see pictures here already um, my first devices slash computers slash consoles or co consoles not at the same time uh, that he remembers were Atari 2600 and Pegasus console which was hardware clone of the Nintendo uh, Nintendo Entertainment System. So back then, when he did not even knew that it was an Atari 2600, as he referred to it as video computer system, and did not even knew any English by then, uh, so it took him about two decades to get to know by accident that this video computer system was an Atari 2600. But yeah, uh, then he got an Amiga 600 computer, or should he say his parents bought it for him? Yeah, that's probably more accurate at that age, uh, which served him for playing computer games and also other activities for the first time. The Amiga is the computer that had the greatest influence on him, and that is the first time he studied books about Amiga Workbench operating system and learned commands from the Amiga shell terminal. So there's a, a little picture here from the console and how the keyboard looks like for the people who have never seen this. And he loved the idea of RAM disks uh, icons slash directories on a desktop that allowed him to transparently put anything in system memory and still misses that concept on today's desktop systems actually and will still remember how dismal it was when he watched Amiga Deathbed Vigil movie. Oh yeah. So uh, at the end of 1998 he got his first computer or personal computer, actually, that of course came with Windows, and that computer served both as a gaming machine as well as a typical tool. Uh, 
So one time he dug into the internals with the Windows registry, uh, which left him disgusted by its concepts and implementation and its limited command line interface provided by the cmd.exe. Uh, yeah, if you use the Unix shell, then yeah, you'll miss a lot of things in that. <laughs> so he remembers that the heart of this uh, box was not the CPU, but the motherboard and the graphics accelerator. So the legendary 3DFX Voodoo card. Oh, yes, the memories. Yeah. Uh, so this company, 3DFX, their attitude and philosophy also left solid fingerprint on uh, his ways, uh, like the Amiga did. So when after that migration from the Amiga to the personal computer, it never again felt right. The games were cool, but the Windows system was horrible. Time has passed, and different Windows versions and hardware modifications took place. Windows XP felt really heavy at that time, not to mention Windows 2000, for example, with even bigger hardware requirements. So uh, I also, uh, he writes, I also do not understand all the hate about Windows ME. It crashed with the same frequency as Windows 98 or later Windows 98 Second Edition, but maybe his hardware was different. I didn't actually use ME, but the people I saw, it was definitely worse than Windows 98 SE. The other thing is they tried to kind of remove DOS from it, whereas with Windows 98, it was still pretty much there. Um, I was very much glad with the uh, when the XP came and we actually got an NT kernel instead of this old yeah. 98 thing. Oh yeah, we ran XP for a long time, and then you know. Well, so I didn't switch to XP originally right away, because my friend had had horrible crashiness with it. But it turned out it was because he installed his uh, heatsink rotated like I... ninety degrees, and so it wasn't <laughs> actually seated correctly, and it was constantly overheating his CPU, <laughs> which explained a lot more of the instability he had than it was XP's fault. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I didn't really like the Fisher Price look of it, but eventually I figured I had to avoid yeah. those two things. And uh, then I switched, and I definitely would not have given it back once and I got so, on it. Yeah. Uh, and even then, you know, I was doing some Unixy stuff, but I don't know that I'd ever tried to do like an X-based desktop yet. Mm -hmm. uh, so I I done shell stuff on FreeBSD machines by then. But I'd never actually tried to use it as my desktop. Yeah, I mean, some some people's reasons for migrating from Windows 2000 to Windows XP was that XP actually had USB support, and uh, so things like that. It's like, okay, what's the reason for the migration? Well, hardware. Okay, but yeah, back to his story. Um, he writes, "I do not have any uh, mine uh, screenshots or." Does not have any special screenshot from that period as he lost all his 40 gigabytes, huge then, uh, drive of data when he removed or resized the partition with partition magic to get some more space from the less filled C drive. And I that did day the same thing. I thought it was hung or something and I just gave up and rebooted and then everything was gone and I was like, uh, Backups, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, well, everyone. My previous machine had had a tape drive for backups, but this one didn't. And the tapes were not very big anyway. They wouldn't have been enough to back up the hard drive. Yeah. Oh, did you regularly run ScanDisk? That was the, the thing. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. See, what I had was the O&O defrag suite. Ooh. So instead of just the regular defrag, which you could watch and was fun, mine, you could sort the files alphabetically or sort them uh, defrag by most recently modified so you take all the files that haven't changed and put them at the beginning of the disk mm -hmm. and all the files that are changing at the end and then you don't end up with holes yeah yeah <laughs> so i just sit there like re 
aligning the files on my hard drive in different ways. Yeah, just fun. to mostly to watch animation. the graphics of the little blocks <laughs> moving around. It was it was silly. It was terribly, uh, terribly silly. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah. Oh, well. Okay. So he never lost data again, uh, as he had multiple copies of his data uh, back then. Uh, learned about backups in this in this regard from that uh, lost drive here. Uh, but the same, uh, yeah, he, that, that was pretty much, he lost the data and it's gone forever. So he always followed various alternatives, which led him to try Linux in 2003. And after reading about various distribution philosophies, decided to run Slackware Linux with KDE 3. And his buddy used uh, Aurox Linux by then, one of the few Linux distributions from Poland, and encouraged him to do the same, especially in the context of fixing possible problems he had already knew, uh, known and also as the recently dumped Windows system. Uh, but Slackware sounded like a better idea, so took that path instead. And at first, he dual booted uh, between Windows XP and Slackware Linux because he had everything worked out on the Windows world. Um, while he often felt helpless in the Linux world, so he could reboot to Windows to play some games or find a solution for Linux problems uh, when it was required. And he remembered how strange the concept of dual clipboards like primary and secondary was for him then. Yeah, and KDE, yeah. I uh, was amazed uh, why so much better systems as Linux, or at least market that way, uh, needs a system tray program to literally manage the clipboard. Uh, on Windows, it was obvious to control C and control V to paste things, but on Linux there, uh, ah, well, it's X11, of course. Uh, there were two clipboards that were synchronized by this uh, little tray system, uh, tray icon system from KDE 3, and it was unthinkable for him that it will lose contents of the last recent control C operation if it closed the application from which the copy was made. Um, he settled to a little slackware uh, down to a little slackware, but not for long, and really did not like the manual dependency management for packages, for example. Also, KDE was really ugly, and despite trying all possible options, I wasn't able to tweak it something to something nice-looking. And it's also a very hungry system, as far as I recall. They need a lot of memory. Well, relative to what was available then, yeah. Compared yeah. to nowadays, KDE 3 uses no memory at all. <laughs> Okay, um, so after half of a year on Slackware, he checked the Linux distributions again and decided to try the Gentoo Linux. Yeah, the Gentoo Linux phase. We all did, yeah, our little I experiments did. there. Yeah, okay, you you passed that by. Okay, like when I, when I first installed, <laughs> skip that an, uh, a non Windows OS on my first server. I tried FreeBSD, then I tried Slackware, and then I immediately went back to FreeBSD, and, mm -hmm. and that's. That's the story uh, of how Alan used Linux for a day and then stopped. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it was only short exposure. That's good. Yeah. Um, so after, yeah, and uh, yeah, that's the gentle Linux part, and it definitely agrees with the image below. You can see that in the website, um, which visualizes the gentle Linux experience. Come on, fly! And especially when you install it for the first time. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, of course, he went with the most hardcore version uh, with self-building stage one, compiler and toolchain. Yeah, compiling is making everything yeah, faster, indeed, uh, which was horrible uh, at that time, uh, or the idea at least, because compilation on slow single-core machines took forever. But after many hours, he got Gen2 installed, and he now has to decide which desktop environment to use. Um, he has read a lot of good news about Fluxbox, and at that time, so this uh, was what he tried. And it was a weird experience to create everything in GUI from scratch. Yeah, but very pleasant one. Uh, that recalled him the times of the Amiga, but Linux came in the way too much too often. 
The more he digged into li gentle Linux, the more he read that lots of Linux features are based on FreeBSD solutions. Oh yeah, here, there's the first hint. Uh, gentle Portage is a clone of the FreeBSD port system, and that central etcrc.com system configuration file concept was taken from FreeBSD as well. So he started to gather information about FreeBSD. The then FreeBSD website or FreeBSD port site still felt a little outdated to say the least, but that did not discourage him. And then somewhere yeah, the website does still feel like it's... Yeah, it could use a facelift. Uh, it's definitely not the prettiest thing. But it does its job. Uh, so somewhere in 2005, uh, he installed the FreeBSD 5.4 on his computer. Uh, the, begin the beginnings were hard, like the early step with Gentoo. But similarly, like Gentoo, the FreeBSD project came with a lot of great documentation. And while Gentoo documentation is concentrated with various Gentoo wiki sites, the FreeBSD project comes with the official documentation in the form of the handbook and FAQ. So uh, he remembered his first questions at the now non-existent bsdforums.org site. Uh, for example, one of the first ones, how to scroll the terminal output in plain console. Yeah, you need to know about uh, this special key on your keyboard that you don't press that often. Um, I know now that it had to uh, push scroll lock button, but it was something totally new for him. Yeah, it's, it's something special, yeah. So why FreeBSD and not OpenBSD or NetBSD, the question is? Probably because Gentoo based most of the concept on the FreeBSD solutions, so that had led him to FreeBSD instead of the other BSD operating systems. And currently he still uses FreeBSD, but he keeps a steady eye on OpenBSD, HardenBSD, left and right, and Dragonfly as well, um, in what they have as solutions or improvements. And as the migration path from Linux to FreeBSD is a lot easier, all the configuration files from slash home can't can be just copied. The migration was quite easy and fast, and he again had the Fluxbox config files, which he used on Gentoo as well. And now on FreeBSD, it started to fell even fell even more like a mega time. So yeah, everything is and has been uh, well thought out and has its place and reason. Documentation was good, and the FreeBSD community was second to none. And so uh, yeah, after a little bit of. Uh, experimentation and programming. He also provided some software back that we covered earlier, like the uh, BEADMM tool. So, uh, yeah, that's a nice, nice story. How people, that's a typical story, actually, from coming from mm -hmm. different operating systems and, you know, taking the next uh, step to a system that you like more or that's similar to a system that you used previously. Yeah, there's uh, lots more to read there if you want to read how they got into ZFS and a bunch of other interesting bits. It's all there. Go check it out. So, time for the weekly news roundup. Uh, we have a story about OpenBSD on the desktop. Some thoughts, the mm -hmm. blog post goes. It starts off with um, Gizora's place. So, apparently, it's Gizora writing here. Uh, uh, I've been using OpenBSD on my ThinkPad X230 for some weeks now, and the experience has been peculiar in some ways. Hmm. The OS itself, in my opinion, is not ready for widespread desktop usage, and the development team is not trying to push it to the throat of anybody who wants a Windows or Mac OS alternative. You need to understand a little bit of how Unix systems work, because you'll use the CLI more than the UI, the graphical interface. Uh, that's not necessarily bad, and the author here is um, sure learned a lot of tricks here or there that could translate easily to Linux or the macOS systems. So their development process is purely based on developers that love to contribute and hack around just because it's fun. Even the mailing list is a cool place to hang on. 
And code correctness and security are a must in OpenBSD. Nothing gets committed if it doesn't get reviewed thoroughly first. Nowadays, the first two prop properties should be enforced in every major operating system. So um, they like the idea of a platform that continually evolves. There's pledge and unveil that the proof uh, that are proof that with a little effort you can secure existing software better than ever. And it's, also, it's more than a little effort. <laughs> yeah, it's it uh, requires a lot of things, and it's not uh, completely finished yet. But they are making good progress here. So they like the sensible defaults approach too, having an operating system ready to be used, UI included if you selected it during the setup process. That is great. So just install a browser and you're ready to run. Uh, the manual pages on OpenBSD are real manuals, not just extensions of the help command found in most CLI softwares. Yep, uh, they help you understand the inner workings of the operating system. No internet connection is needed. And uh, there are some trade-offs too. So performance is not first class, mostly because of all the security mitigations and checks done at runtime. And um, well, the author yeah. writes... As they've described, OpenBSD is, is really kind of a, a research OS. So it's not meant for performance. It's meant for testing out these ideas like uh, Pledge and Unveil and proving they work, which then then be adopted by uh, more regular mainstream OSs. Yeah, and also they are still um, doing the multi-threading uh, locking mm -hmm. and all that. But yeah, it's definitely, um, if you're interested in the security mitigations, then go to OpenBSD. So the author write, writes Go in NeoVim, and sometimes you can find a slight slowdown when you're compiling and editing multiple files at the same time, but usually you can't notice any meaningful difference. Browsers are a different matter, though. You can definitely feel something differs from the experience you can have on mainstream operating systems. Yeah, again, multi-threading and all this uh, GPU support that you now have for, for tabs, that's certainly uh, something yeah, that's the, there. The, the browser is still multi-threaded on OpenBSD, so it's not like it's that yep. bad. Yeah, depending on how many uh, tabs you have open and what you're doing on the web. But again, uh, trade-offs. Yeah, to use OpenBSD on a desktop, you must be ready to sacrifice some of the goodies of mainstream OSs. But if you're searching for a Zen place to do your computing stuff, it's the best you can get right now. Well, also, um, the OpenBSD project has the Zenocara project that secures the X11 and makes it uh, extra secure in, in their own way. So that's what the other BSDs don't have. So yeah, it's... Uh, these are interesting thoughts, and I hope the, there will be follow-up questions. And I think well, yeah, we've covered yeah. OpenBSD desktops before, right? Yeah, uh, so it, it mostly gets down to if you want an operating system that doesn't do things you didn't ask it to do and just does exactly what you tell it to do and doesn't have extraneous things running and eating up your hardware and so on, then yes, that is the best way to do it. Yeah, it's not for everyone, but if you know what you're doing and want the minimalistic yeah. things, then... None of the BSDs are trying to supplant Windows as a great desktop OS. Uh, yep. But they can also be a perfectly functional desktop when you just want a machine that isn't you know, going to reboot itself to install updates or isn't going to do other yeah. evil things you don't want it to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so picture it out for yourself and then you see... Uh, which system is best for you. Okay, next up, um, we have the history of file type information being available in the Unix directories. Yes, uh, so this is uh, further to a previous uh, post that we had talked about. Uh, 
with uh, Chris Seibemann, uh, who's a storage administrator at uh, the University of Toronto. He says, uh, the two things that Unix directory entries absolutely have to have are the name of the directory entry and its inode, which is basically the ID of the file in the, in the file system, by which we generically mean some stable kernel identity or identifier for the file that will persist if the file gets renamed or linked into a different directory and so on. Unsurprisingly, directory entries uh, have had these since the days when you uh, read the raw bytes of directories with the read command. And for a long time, uh, that was all they had. If you uh, wanted more than the name and the IDO number, you had to do stat on the file, not just read the directory. Then, well, I'll quote myself from an older entry on the find uh, optimization. Unix file system developers realized that it was very common for programs reading directories to need to know a bit more about directory entries than just the name of the file. Uh, you know, find is an obvious case. Uh, you know, or you consider ls capital F. Uh, given that the type of an active uh, inode never changes, it's possible to embed this information straight into the directory entry and then return that to the user. And that's what uh, developers did. On some systems, reader uh, will now return directory entries with an additional D type field uh, that tells you what type it is. So that tells you if it's a directory, a link, a regular file, etc. So he says, on Twitter, I recently grumbled about Illumos not having this D-type field. Uh, the ensuing conversation wound up with me curious about exactly where D-type came from and how far back it actually went. The answer turns out to be a bit surprising due to being uh, there being two different sides of D-type. The kernel side, uh, D-type appears to have shown up in 4.4 BSD uh, under sys slash durent.h. Uh, there's a struct durent that has a dtype field, but this field isn't documented in the comments in the file or in the get dir entries man page. Mm. Um, both of these admit only that the traditional BSD durent fields. Uh, this 4.4 BSD dtype was carried through to things that inherited from 4.4 BSD Lite, uh, like FreeBSD, but it continued to be undocumented for at least a while. In FreeBSD, the most convenient history I could find is uh, here on GitHub on, in a FreeBSD mirror. And the dtype field is present in surdistent as far back as FreeBSD 2.0, which seems to be as far back as that repo goes. Um, I wonder if he actually got a link to that uh, BSD history repo that goes all the way back to the beginning. Anyway. Uh, documentation for dtype appears in the getter entries man page as of FreeBSD 2.2.0, where the man page itself claims to have been updated in uh, on May 3rd of 1995. In FreeBSD, this appears to have been part of merging the 4.4 BSD Lite 2 distribution, which seems to have been done in 1997. I stumbled over a repo of the old UCB BSD commit history. Uh, and in that, it documents that it appears in May 3rd, 1995, uh, which at least the same day. It appears that the FreeBSD 2.2.0 release was sometime in 97, uh, which is when this would have appeared in a, a release that people could download. Uh, in Linux, it seems that the Durant structure with the dtype member appeared uh, only just before the 2.4.0 branch, uh, which was released at the start of 2001. 
Uh, Linux took this long uh, because the dtype field only appeared in the 64-bit large file support version of the durant structure. Um, so it was only uh, returned by new 64-bit uh, get durant64 system call, which would uh, have been a few years after FreeBSD officially documented what uh, the dtype was. And probably many years after it was actually available if you peeked in the structure definition itself. Mm -hmm. And it's got some links to some Linux kernel history if you're interested. Uh, so he says, as far as I can tell, dtype is present on Linux, FreeBSD, OpenBSD, NetBSD, Dragonfly BSD, Darwin, and therefore macOS 10, uh, is not present on Solaris and thus Illumos. As far as my other commercial Unixes go, you're on your own. All the links to man pages for things like AIX from my old entry on the remaining Unixes appear to have rotted away. Uh, do we have maybe some man pages from AIX in the FreeBSD man webpage? Um, I think so. We have, we linked to a couple other uh, man pages. But, well, the, uh, uh, like in the in our man page thing for yeah. FreeBSD, we have some .org. old ones like available. Yep, uh, uh, manual pages. Like we see. have like 2.10 BSD and 3.86 BSD and CentOS, Darwin, Debian, HPUX, NetBSD, no. OpenBSD, OpenDarwin, Plan, Plan 9, Red Hat, SUS, SunOS, X11, and X386. So no, we don't have an AIX. We have HPUX. Does that count? <laughs> anyway. Oh, dear. Um, so sidebar, the file system also matters on modern Unixes. Even if your Unix does have the dtype uh, in the durant uh, directory entry, it doesn't mean that it's supported by the file system for any specific directory. As far as I know, every Unix with dtype support uh, has support for, for it in their normal local file system, but it's not guaranteed uh, that all file systems, especially non-Unix file systems like, say, FAT32, your code should always be prepared to deal with a file type of DT unknown. Uh, file systems can implement support for file type information in directories uh, entries in a number of different ways. Uh, the actual on-disk format of directory entries is file system specific, so you, the file system is free to do whatever it wants. It's also possible to have things the other way around, where you have a file system that supports uh, file type information in directories uh, on a Unix that doesn't support it, like if you are using ZFS on Lumos. Uh, there are many, a number of possible reasons for this, but they're uh, either obvious or beyond the scope of this article. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Too. If you want to keep reading uh, ahead of maybe when we cover it next week, he has uh, the follow-up: How ZFS maintains the file type information for directories. So it's nice to have these uh, little uh, snippets here from the history and also seeing where it ends up in the code and um, the actual links to you know why everything is the way it is. Very nice. Mm -hmm. So uh, the next story is we have a multi-boot uh, Pinebook with KDE Neon. So this is uh, a nice way because they have uh, images now available. Uh, so recently, a KDE Neon image for the Pinebook was announced, and there is a new image with a handful of fixes with uh, with which the KDE Plasma team has been working on over the past week and a half. And there's a picture of the Pinebook running KDE Neon, if you can see that. Yep, that's, uh, I guess, uh, yeah. Um, discernible, yeah. There's a new image um, out there, and, oh, watching Panic here at the Disco's High Hopes. Um 
sitting in front of his monitor that's hooked up to one of the OpenSUSE systems. Uh, there are still some errata and watching videos sucks up battery quickly, but for hacking up documentation from the hammock in the garden or doing RSC meetings, it's a really nice machine. Uh, but one of the neat things about running KDE Neon off of an SD card on the Pinebook is that it's portable. The SD card can move around. So let's talk about multi-boot in the sense of booting the same OS storage medium in different hardware units, rather than booting different operating systems from a medium in a single hardware unit. So on these little ARM boards, U-Boot does all the heavy lifting early in the boot process, and to reuse the KDE Neon Pinebook image on another ARM board, the U-Boot blocks need to be replaced. And uh, apparently the U, uh, yeah, so the U-boot uh, from a Pine64 image, forget what it was, uh, lying around uh, 10, 15 blocks of 1024 bytes, uh, which you can then DD over to the U-bot blocks in the SD cards. So DD block size 1K, conf no trunk, and sync. And uh, if uh, the input file is the U-boot image that you have, and you push that out to your DA0. Be careful where you put this, otherwise you overwrite important Make sure uh, you're writing it to the right system. SD card and not to something else. Yep, and don't forget to seek equals eight. And then the same SD card with the file system and data from the Pinebook will boot on the Pine64 board. Of course, to move the SD card back again, uh, he needs to restore the Pinebook U-boot blocks. And uh, here's a picture of the Pine board. The is a piece of the garden fence. <laughs> it's Douglas Pine with 4mm threaded rods acting as the corner posts for his Pine64 mini rack. Oh, nice. A little bit of, uh, yeah, <laughs> home, home handiwork here. Um, uh, with power and network and a serial console attached, along with a serial console output of the same. So the nice thing here is that the same software stack runs on the Pine64, but then has a wired network, which in turn means that if I switch on the other boards in that mini rack, I've got a distcc capable cluster for fast development and vast NFS storage, served of course from ZFS on his FreeBSD machines, uh, for source. I can develop in a higher powered environment and then swap the card around into the Pinebook for testing on the go. So to sum it all up, you can multi-boot the KDE Neon Pinebook image on other Pine64 hardware, like the Pine64 board, and to do that, you need to swap around the U-boot blocks, as we described with the DD command. Uh, the boot blocks can be picked out of an image built for each board, and then a particular image, like the latest KDE Neon Pinebook, can be run on either board. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see a way to let you kind of have something that bootstraps, that loads U-boot for you. So you could pick the right U-boot or have it pick the right U-boot uh, where you could have one SD card image that contains like eight different U-boots and you just put that SD card in, uh, you know, a Raspberry Pi, an, a Pine64, a Pinebook, a Rock 64 a bunch of other different boards and it ends up running the same image. Yeah, the more ARM boards that we have now, uh, the more this makes sense to just have one image and walk around with that one. Uh, I'm also now wondering is like can you build something where you'd have zfs with boot environments where you could have the same sd card have both an arm system and an amd64 system and you just slide the sd card into a machine and boot it and it detects and it which boot, one and you could have the same home directory and move it to different like processor architectures because mm. uh, ZFS is one of the only cross-endian file systems where you can actually make a file system 
that will go back and forth between the two. Like uh, going back and forth between MIPS and x86 uh, with UFS doesn't really work because when you make a UFS file system, it's n it puts the bytes in the order on whatever platform you create the file system. Yeah. And so it's not well, really readable on the opposite one. Yeah, or typically you mount it with NFS storage and don't uh, carry the home directory on that little uh, right. SD card with you. But yeah, in general, this could be could be a nice development project yeah. for um, rainy days. <laughs> the instructions aren't quite ready yet, but the Pine64 is mostly working with FreeBSD now. Um, I got to find my power adapter to start to recharge mine. Mm. <laughs> uh, but Manu's got some instructions he's working on putting together uh, so that you can actually run it. So he's got his booting with the EFI frame buffer graphics and Ooh, actually cool. being able to run graphics on the Pinebook uh, with FreeBSD. So that's a good start. I just got to find my charger uh, and uh, figure out how to get it working on mine. Yeah, maybe we can get a, a blog post or an interview from him about all these uh, developments. That would be nice mm -hmm. to see. So, time for Beastie Bits this week. We collected a couple of them this week and start off with unexpected benefit with Ryzen, reducing powerful build servers. Yeah, so this is an email uh, from Matthew Dillon of the Dragonfly Project. He says, I received an unexpected benefit today when I checked for BIOS updates and found that my uh, ASRock AV350M Pro 4 Ryzen motherboard now supports ECC memory. I decided that it was finally time to update my home server uh, from an E3 1270 Xeon, uh, so four cores, eight threads, to a 2700X, which is a Ryzen, uh, runs at 4.1 gigahertz instead of 3.4, and has eight cores and 16 threads. Uh, in doing so, I am using ECC memory, and uh, the only EU DIMMs I have are uh, 2133 megahertz at these memory frequencies overclocking the cpu itself doesn't really add much benefit so i decided to test just how low a power envelope i could set um, and still remain uh, full multi-threaded performance for compile time that is the system is limited by uh, relatively low memory bandwidth so there's no need to overclock the cpu itself it turns out really low ryzen cpus are very sensitive to memory bandwidth to make these changes, I tell the BIOS to use the AMD CBS settings, which is usually uh, in the overclock tweaker menu. Uh, then go into the CBS settings under advanced CBS NBIO XFR. <laughs> uh, I enabled XFR2 and set the uh, PPT, TDC, and EDC limits, uh, setting the TDC and EDC high enough so that they don't get in the way, and then limit power consumption by adjusting the PPT. Uh, by using the PPT limit instead of manually setting the CPU frequency, the motherboard gets the best of both worlds. It will idle uh, just as low as it did before. Uh, it will still run one or two of the cores at full speed, like 4.1 gigahertz, and it will uh, ratchet down the frequency when all cores are loaded. Using a PPT limit with XFR2 is far, far superior to manually overclocking uh, the CPU. With standard XFR enabled in auto mode, the 2700X will pull around 180 watts uh, from the wall at full load. This might be useful if I had DDR4 3 gigahertz memory, uh, but I only have 2133. 
so there's no real need to pull that much power uh, at full load. I was able to reduce this all the way down to 85 watts at full load without really impacting the speed of a concurrent Make-J32 native kernel, no modules. Um, now, obviously, more compute-bound workloads will suffer a lot more, but I mostly do compiles with the 16-thread machine, uh, and it tends to be memory bandwidth limited and not CPU limited. Note, some BIOSes are still in uh, milliwatts, uh, others are in watts. Make sure you double check. <laughs> Incorrectly yeah. setting can crowbar your, PD, uh, your power supply or blow up the CPU. The blow tests are using XFR2 enabled with a PPT power envelope limit set. The XFR2 controls the CPU frequency rather than manual overclocking. So, <clears throat> uh, running make j 32 and looking at how long it takes, um, at the full 100,000, uh, the PPT setting, uh, his system used 160 watts and took one minute and six seconds to do the work and ran at 3.6 gigahertz on uh, when all the cores were busy and one core ran at 4.2 gigahertz. When he dropped the power to 75,000, uh, usage dropped to 135 watts. Uh, and then when he dropped all the way to 50,000, power usage dropped to 85 watts. In exchange, it took one minute and 10 seconds instead of one minute and six seconds. Uh, and all the cores ran at only 2.8 gigahertz instead of 3.6. And his one core dropped to about 4.0 gigahertz instead of 4.2. Um, I settled on running the server with the PVT at 65,000, uh, which gives 115 watts and is basically the middle ground of the speed and time. This seems to be a reasonable trade-off and it's a huge benefit in power costs. I've noticed similar behavior on the Threadripper 2990X, which is 32 cores. Uh, there's just no need to run uh, that Threadripper at 330 watts when 225 watts is just fine for that multi-threaded workload. Uh, he says, this is a very impressive efficiency. Uh, who would have thought that one would be able to run an eight core machine CPU full load at only 85 watts and still reap most of the benefits uh, in a memory heavy workload? Of course, in the server space, we've known for a long time that maximum efficiency occurs when a high number of cores running at low frequencies, and that efficiency trumps performance on machines with high core count. But I've never considered that the consumer Ryzen CPUs could also benefit from the same thing until now. Now that uh, the consumer CPUs are starting to get up there in the high core counts, it could make a big difference. AMD has a real winner with their XFR2 feature, not only for overclocking, but also for reducing the power envelope, not to mention supporting ECC on all of their CPUs, a consumer and server grade, uh, which many rising consumer motherboards now support uh, as demand has increased for that feature. Mm -hmm. So would it be really interesting to see if you can actually uh, modulate these the PPT setting inside the running OS in the future instead of only via the BIOS? Yeah, that would save you a reboot. And, right. Uh, well, importantly, while a lot of times I might want to turn down, every once in a while I might want to turn it back up. Oh, you mean dynamically? You know, like frequency uh, well, scaling? Possibly manually, actually. But mm. even uh, manually, yeah. Or automatically, too. Hmm. Oh, yeah, certainly. That's, uh, that, that's probably one of the next things that we will make available. Unless you can make... Uh, 
damage from the user land into the CPU this way, like uh, overriding variables. But yeah, it, it's definitely a nice uh, uh, speed up. And who would have thought that a simple BIOS update would give you <laughs> this uh, possibility? All right, uh, next up, we have a couple of news from uh, Michael W. Lucas, our uh, author of choice here. Uh, the first one starting with Happy Cider Day. But before you raise your glasses, this is something different. Uh, so he writes, Happy Cider Day. On September 24th, 1993, the IETF published RFC 1519, designating the classless inner domain routing, or CIDR, and variable length subnet masks as the standard. That particular document is obsolete by later RFCs, but it's still a milestone. So before then, IP addresses were allocated by classes. Class A, B, and C addresses were the norm. I'm not going to explain classful addressing because it's long, obsolete, and on the current internet, stupid. Uh, but what he's going to do is to go on a mini tirade about uh, classful addressing. Because there's a lot of people out there still teaching classful addressing to newcomers. And then these poor newcomers hit the field, and people like me have to spend our time unteaching them what they so painfully learned. Yeah, uh, this really annoyed me when I was teaching TCP IP and subnetting and so on. Uh It's like, why do we start with this? It doesn't help. <laughs> yeah, I don't need that very often in my future line of work. Like, just teach them cider. It makes <laughs> sense. Yeah, it's it's part of the like the curriculum, and never uh, ask why. Okay, um, so. Uh, he fully understands it takes a few years to disseminate the knowledge, but textbooks are still being published that claim classful routing is their standard. This is an appalling disservice to the profession. Yes, CIDR looks hard, but if a new network admin can't handle CIDR and VLSM, they shouldn't be administering networks. That's perhaps the easiest math they'll need to handle in their career. And the internet is full of cheat sheets for people who don't want to bother to do the math. So on this, the 25th anniversary of classless interdomain routing, I hereby declare September 24, 1993, Cider Day, dedicated to stamping out class for addressing. A whole variety of celebrations are appropriate. First, of course, Cider. Cider is obligatory on Cider Day. <laughs> Second, whenever someone who should know better says class C, class B, or class A address, Explain to them the error of their ways with the minimum amount of force needed to make sure they never say it again. And if you know someone who's still teaching the garbage, well at them until they promise to stop. If yelling doesn't work, escalate. Because frankly, I'm tired of re-educating innocent newcomers who should have been better served by their instructors. Yep. There we go. And uh, comments also say fully concur. And yeah. Cool. Very nice so next piece. up, we have important news. The official ship date uh, for Absolute FreeBSD 3rd Edition. Uh, so the print version of Absolute FreeBSD, the 3rd Edition, will leave the printers on October 4th, uh, and it will that therefore absolutely be on hand in time for MeetBSD. That's tomorrow. Uh, yep. Uh, big thanks go to Bill Pollack, uh, the shot color over at No Starch Press, for making this happen. A paper shortage drove the printer to slip the ship date to mid-month, uh, which would have made making MeetBSD pretty much impossible. Uh, once we knew uh, what the problem was, he was able to properly aim the butt-walloping department and get the book done in time. So somebody else's book got delayed instead. <laughs> uh, Bill was also prepared to run a few copies uh, as print-on-demand so that there would be then 
so something that we could bring to to meet BSD. Excellent. Uh, which is more than most publishers would be willing to do. But print on demand uh, for big books is nowhere near as nice as real printing. And besides, uh, most of the eager readers, uh, the ones likely to show up at MeetBSD, are ones who most deserve the properly printed book. So, uh, plus, if I'm going to get on a blasted airplane because my new book is out, I want to at least uh, have the book there when I arrive. Uh, this doesn't mean Amazon will ship your book on October 4th. The books uh, have to traverse the physical distance between the printer and the warehouses and so on. But uh, pretty soon you'll start seeing deliveries of uh, absolute FreeBSD 3rd edition. Uh, yeah. And in related news, uh, Lucas will be talking uh, FreeBSD at the Michigan User Group on October 9th. Oh yeah, and, that's uh, also close. Uh, with some luck, he'll have print copies there as well. Excellent, yeah. Uh, they apparently also have a, a live meeting stream, so in case you can't make it in person, then uh, if you're uh, mm -hmm. so inclined, watch the, the live show or the live uh, recording, if there is a recording, or mm -hmm. at least a stream. And, uh, yeah, so yeah, the right. October 9th meeting uh, will take place at the Farmington Community Library. Okay, and Michael will be speaking exclusively on that topic, I guess. Uh, yes, he'll book? be talking about uh, FreeBSD and whatever else he wants to talk about. <laughs> oh yeah, and they have their regular features as well. Jobs looking for people, people looking for jobs, and much more. So that's not just him talking or about the book, but also you know networking and uh, bringing people together. Excellent. Um, speaking of other uh, conferences, we covered MeetBSD a couple of times, but we can't uh, help ourselves mentioning it again because it's coming up soon. And this is over at the iX Systems blog, of course, because the MeetBSD 2018 countdown is already started. And they have a little video here, and they pretty much grasp the, the experience of the previous MeetBSDs and that you can be excited about the next one. So we're just under a month away from MeetBSD California at 2018, and it's not too late to register and make your travel plans. Plans, In fact, everyone who registers between now and September 30, okay, so that's over, um, they would have met, got one of the absolute FreeBSD 3rd edition books. Uh, but this is the Intel headquarter, or at least the Intel uh, campus. You can see a little screenshot here from the entrance. That's where you have to get in, I guess. And there's not just uh, talks, but there's also uh, the hallway track and uh, the segments in between for the unconference parts. Uh, you can find a couple interesting talks in the schedule. We, I think we covered that last week, so we don't have to go over it again. But uh, we're excited, and the iX Systems folks are also excited about this, and uh, it's definitely something we'll, they look forward to. And it's just two weeks away from, I guess, this recording. Yep. Excellent. Uh, there's soon. other... <laughs> but yeah, I look forward to it. It's, it's a nice way of ending the year for my conference travel. Um, so next up in our items list here is the October London BSD meetup on October 9th. So this is interesting. Um, and it's happening again at the Hand and Shears in uh, the London. Um, yeah, the Cloth Fair, Middle Street. And uh, Sevan says, see you there. Glad that he's keeping up the meetings there and uh, yep. bringing the people together. And there's also the North Rhine-Westphalia BSD user group meeting at the new Trivago uh, 
buildings, I guess, uh, on October 9th also happening. So the site is in German, uh, I know, but they have regular meetings. And this well, is the next The one. meeting is in Germany, so. <laughs> yeah, well, that makes sense, yeah. Otherwise, um, I would have uh, <laughs> uh, liked to join that. Maybe one day I will get. So they meet every two months on the second Tuesday in, a, in that month, uh, around 7 p.m. Uh, with Trivago in, uh, in Düsseldorf, I guess, yeah. And uh, they also listed the next uh, couple of uh, appointments that they have. So you can plan ahead and go to those ones. You can also follow them on Twitter at BSDNRW and get the latest news uh, about that. And uh, yeah, thanks Trivago for hosting this. And um, yeah, if you are in the area, why don't you go? Yeah, we also have uh, a trip report from somebody who went to EuroBSDCon, uh, Lars Wittebrod. Uh, so he says, I visited EuroBSDCon this year, and it was held uh, from the 20th to 23rd uh, of 2018 in Bucharest. <laughs> um, and he says, it's the fifth time that they've visited EuroBSDCon. I don't have any experience of visiting other BSD conferences, but hopefully someday soon. So he says, uh, last year I was able or not able to attend the BGP tutorial by Peter Hessler, but this year I was able to fit it in my agenda. I was very happy. Uh, that I was able to do that this year. The tutorial was well presented and Peter was very knowledgeable on both the general BGP subject as well as on open BGPD. Uh, a good amount of people, approximately 20, visited the tutorial uh, and it taught me the basics of BGP in general and the open BGPD uh, implementation of it. And as I did not know anything really substantial about BGP and open BGPD before, that was a well-spent day. Mm, excellent. Yeah, uh, and then his highlights from the conference. Uh, first, were was BAP's talk, uh, er, introducing FreeBSD into new environments. And he says a lot of uh, different angles and views were shared in this talk about the strengths and perceived weaknesses of FreeBSD and the project. Um, this was good. It put you in front of the mirror. I found it funny that it was uh, mentioned that the standard FreeBSD CSH shell uh, was it's like, why is that the default shell? <laughs> I always used it. And once I've changed it to another shell, I got the problem with FreeBSD ports. <laughs> a, a second observation is that I agree with the statement that it would be beneficial for FreeBSD if Beehive uh, wasn't missing the live migration functionality and so on. Mm -hmm. But I realized that it's very difficult to implement with few developer resources. Uh, next talk they went to was using boot environments. Um, I'm using boot environments in ZFS on my Beehive hosts, so this was a no-brainer to attend. Although I do not uh, run as many machines as Scale Engine, this talk was still worth my money. Alan presented his material in a clear and precise manner. It was also very nice to learn about the image subcommand for Poodrier, which I did not know about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a good was, talk. Uh, Unveil in OpenBSD uh, by Bob Beck. Uh, he says, I'm not running any OpenBSD workloads at the moment, but I attended this the 2017 talk on Pledge, and I thought it was a good follow-up. Uh, Bob is a lively and good speaker and presented uh, what he was uh, done in a clear manner. It was good to follow, even if I'm not uh, a programmer. By attending this talk, uh, it'll pick you up with some of the operating system internal stuff. Then he went to Andrew Fengler's uh, FreeBSD, uh, What Not to Monitor. I look forward to this one because I also manage and monitor a number of FreeBSD-based uh, infrastructures, but the presenter did not let me down. He showed the audience what to monitor using SNMP, including CPU, memory, disk, and ZFS-related items. Nagios was also mentioned, and the audience uh, 
chimed in about Nisinga uh, through questions and experiences uh, comparing it with Nagios. I do not use SNMP myself, so maybe I have to look at it. Uh, but for now, my Nagios implementation works for me. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, FreeBSD VPC, a new kernel subsystem for cloud workloads. Uh, so virtual private cloud and virtual private circuits. Uh, and it's a network blueprint used uh, for cloud platforms like AWS and CloudStack. This talk presented a solution for this functionality on FreeBSD. I found it really cool. The talk was good and the material was presented in a clear way. The basis is there uh, and work needs to be done uh, on the tools to get this to be easier to implement for system administrators, but I'm confident it will get there. And this will be so nice uh, when com combined with Beehive, uh, especially if we eventually get live migrations as well. Oh yeah, that's a feature we all look forward to. Yep, I uh, said so some closing thoughts. This year, the conference had one track less uh, than last year with three instead of four. Overall, this year had uh, some less interesting subjects and talks, but was still interesting. Uh, the food was good. Uh, apparently, they liked it better than last year. I guess lunch last year was those little baguettes. Uh, it's uh, not uh, yeah. personal uh, taste. All in all, said, a good... One talk was not presented? I think one of the presenters did not show up, and they tried to fit in someone else as a backup. Oh. I'm like, not I sure. I wasn't... On the one day, Andrew was sick, but they just swapped his with the one from the same time. Yeah, that, the next that, that day, was, and they both was, went off without a problem. Didn't you? Uh, one, Chris, Christoph, uh, maybe were at a different table. He mentioned that uh, they didn't know that the speaker actually never checked into the hotel, never huh? showed up, and that's kind of oops. But then they, I don't know whether the slot came became empty or someone else did a spontaneous talk. But all in all, a good EuroBeastiecon again this year. And mm -hmm. yeah, great report. And hopefully we'll see you at another conference that has BSD in the title. All right, yeah. Then uh, speaking of EuroBeastiecon, OpenBSD has all their slides up on the Undeadly Org website, of course, from everyone that uh, spoke at EuroBeastiecon from the OpenBSD camp. And you can find them at the usual place. They are uh, listed there. So... Uh, if you haven't been able to go to those or want to look at the slides again, they are there. And uh, also, EuroBSDCon also has some of, or most yeah, of the slides from the, the speakers. The, uh, the official conference website, you can see most of the talks now have slides. I mm -hmm. highly recommend, uh, for example, Tom Jones's talk about uh, how to stream videos so that we never have a BSD conference without video again. Um, and then... Kirk's talk about FreeBSD governance and my talk about boot environments. And uh, yeah, most of those have slides. And uh, we will continue to nag the speakers who haven't sent their slides yet until we get slides. Yep. And that's good. So but, that you know, if you missed the uh, live patching the FreeBSD kernel, uh, the slides are up. Yeah, in case you want to follow up or have ideas or just want to see what was discussed or talked about, then this is a nice way of reminiscing some of the, the talks. Yep. Okay, that's all it for the Beastie Bits this week. We should get right into our feedback and questions section this week, not without mentioning first that you should keep sending us questions to feedback at bsdnow.tv yes. or anything that you find on the web or any questions you might have, comments, anything you think is worthwhile putting it in the show. Okay, first question is from Brad about unmounted ZFS Sense. 
that goes like the following. Hi, Alan, Benedict, and JT. Here is your daily dose of ZFS questions, goodness. I'm searching for an answer to this, but I thought I would ask Alan and provide feedback to the show. So to preface, I bought two more drives for my free NAS. My current configuration is four three terabyte drives in the RAID Z2. And this was due to a combination of advice when he was uh, first starting out, uh, like not to do RAID Z with drives over one terabyte and budgetary considerations. So in the meantime, I have bought another two drives. I plan to destroy an existing VDEF and recreate a RAID Z2 with four data drives and two parity drives. So since I have to destroy my pool, I have been backing up my ZFS send from the free NAS to a USB drive on my desktop machine, which is TrueOS. I get confirmation through ZFS list. However, the drive appears empty, as does my life preserver sent to the free NAS. And ZFS list-o for the name mounted mount point shows mounted equals no. Uh, so my question is, when I destroy and recreate the Z pool with the new drives included and do a ZFS send back to the restored pool, how do I write the data directly to the file system? Is it safe to assume that the file permissions and ownership are preserved across sends? Yes, all the file uh, permissions and ownership and timestamps and everything are, will be preserved across the send. Uh, if the file system is not mounted, you can just do ZFS mount in the dataset name and it'll mount it. Um, uh, and, or you can do ZFS mount dash A to mount everything. Uh, and then you'll be able to browse the files. Um, yeah, to sum it up, I have this send on an external hard drive, and I want to destroy the pool on FreeNAS, and to add two drives, recreate this RAID Z2, and restore the contents of the pool. What is the best way to get from where I am to that point? Yeah, so on the FreeNAS, take a snapshot, replicate it. Sounds like you've already done that. Take another snapshot and do an incremental replication. This will let you catch up with everything you've missed. Uh, you might need to do that one more time to get caught up to any other changes. Um, then you can destroy the pool, create the new one, and then just send it back. Yep, and then you should be on the new pool where you left off on the old one. Yep. Uh, nice and easy. One. Yeah, and uh, now that you have uh, the proper pool layout, you can just in the future swap out disks to increase your pool size without destroying it first. Yep. But yeah, that's what ZFS send is for, and that's how you get your files back with permissions and all that. Um Cool. That's uh, this question. Uh, you know, thanks if, for that. Uh, if you saw my talk about boot environments at EuroBSDCon, I talk about basically doing that uh, same thing. Is the way we actually install new servers at, at Scale Engine is uh, install uh, boot off the CD or USB, create a new empty pool, and then just ZFS receive a complete image onto the drive and then boot. Yep. Wait. Uh, you have the same result, but with a boot environment in case you want to go back or boot after the third time to a different environment, and that's yep. the way. Okay, um, thanks for that. Uh, next is Nicholas about uh, our report from his meetup. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, so we nagged him for this, and uh, now we need to cover it. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Uh, Nicholas long enough ran to... the uh, third BSD user Stockholm meetup um, that took place back on September 5th. That took place at the offices of B3, uh, the IT firm where uh, Nicholas works in central Stockholm. And there were about 25 people uh, that came and listened to the various talks. Uh, after Nicholas welcomed everybody, the first speaker, Anton Lundqvist, uh, took the stage. Anton presented his work on fuzzing the OpenBSD kernel with syscaller 
and the KCOV kernel code coverage uh, driver, he wrote to help with that. Uh, it was very interesting, and even though Anton uh, was only worked on it uh, a little while, he had already found a couple of bugs in OpenBSD. Uh, as this work progressed, there will be further talks about it uh, at future meetups. Uh, undeadly.org also has a short blurb about it uh, with links to the slides, and they can be found here. Uh, I know that uh, there's been some work on the, in the same syscaller stuff on FreeBSD that's already found uh, a bug in Beehive, I think, and, and two or three other ones. So it's good to see that working. Uh, the next talk was Jana Johansson, uh, who presented uh, 0x10 things uh, you didn't know about rsync. Uh, so that's 16 written in hex. Um, this talk detailed the various things you can do with rsync. It turns out rsync is really versatile and uh, has a host of different features. Uh, yes, it does. It just sometimes... Uh, ZFS send is a better feature or a better <laughs> tool for the job. Although not always, there are times when I use rsync still. Uh, mm. But if you're incrementally sending a lot of tiny files, uh, ZFS send will do it so much faster than rsync. It's not funny at wire speed. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, after the talks, it was time uh, for some food and drink and discussions. While some people uh, had to head home a bit early, there were quite a lot of people still around. And there were many interesting discussions. After the food, I did a short presentation about uh, upcoming conferences, uh, talking about EuroBSDCon, where we did a quick review of the schedule. A few people stayed after the official program was over for more discussion and just to hang out for a bit. Uh, overall, it was a very successful meetup and nice turnout of about 25 people. So big thanks to B3 and Init for hosting uh, and providing with food and some drinks. Uh, the next meetup is scheduled for November 13th at the same place, and there's a link if you want to attend. Hey, that was great. 25 people already, and yeah. that's just the third time they did this. So yeah. definitely a good start. And yeah, if you're interested in these kind of things, running a meetup of your own, then you can see what kind of format it can take. Um, and if you have one in your area, then send it to us and we will announce it on the show before it actually happens so that people are aware of it. So yeah, thanks, Nicholas, for that report. And uh, next up is uh, Gislaine uh, with Beehive not used, question uh, mark. This sounds interesting. Uh, it goes like this. Hi, I started to test Beehive for my own use and I just saw the discussion session about uh, BeehiveCon in Tokyo in 2018 this year. And uh, to the question... So who uses Beehive in production only? Is it only Alan uh, was using it for video encoding and none other use it? Well, no, that's not it's not just Alan. No, I think maybe you saw the video from like 2015 uh, or something. Could uh, be. 2016, I forget what it was. The, the very first Beehive Con, uh, I gave a talk about that. Um, but like the, the FreeBSD project uses it for CI uh, CD stuff like constantly. There's lots of people using Beehive uh, for all it's kinds there, of yeah. things. Oh yeah, we've covered it a couple of times on the show, and people use it probably because it's running so smooth that they don't talk about it much, or that well, there's also, little you know, problems. So BeehiveCon <laughs> was mostly people who develop Beehive, and so it's kind of a weird audience versus the people that are running Beehive. Uh, mm. BeehiveCon is just an afternoon right before AJBSDCon. So it's only 
dealing with people who are coming for HBSDCon and just happen to be around. And so we talk about Beehive for a day. It's not actually like a Beehive conference where every Beehive user is yeah. coming to the conference. It's also other hypervisors, but definitely Beehive is one of the uh, the big items there and what yep. people discuss there and what kind of developments there are. Uh, so it's definitely supported. Uh, it's live. It's been used. And people patch it. People use it. People add functionality to it over time. And uh, it's it's used. Definitely. So uh, sorry if we gave the wrong impression there, but uh, it's definitely uh, alive. And last question is from Shane about the Zipple history and snapshots. And this goes... Like the following. Hey, guys. Great show. Thank you. Uh, before the questions, let me share a success from the trenches. Oh, great. Uh, a few days ago, I had a disk die, not spitting errors. It just stopped existing as far as the system was concerned. So anyway, one disk at a time. I replaced the three disks in my RAID C pool, and I'm happily running on a new spinning rust without losing anything. Sure, things were slow for a few days while resilvering, but everything just kept working. Well, so if I you only lost one disk, why'd you replace three? <laughs> Maybe they Maybe were all from the same time period. <laughs> so I got curious and had to look at my pool's history. Uh, well, it was created in 2013, so it will turn five in a couple of months. And as you can probably guess, the history took a while to scroll by. This got me to thinking about how much space it used. Well, at over 250,000 lines, dumping it into a text file makes 30 megabytes, but having a lot of repetition. Uh, it compresses to one megabyte, and I guess the pool could do better than that as it would build it from existing data. But then I figured after 10 years, it would have half a million lines of history, uh, you know, depending on how much you, you do on the pool. And after 20, over a million, that's a lot of history to get through if I want to see the last few steps. And the history command only lists one way. While disk usage may be an issue, should we consider replacing our pools at times to prevent the history getting to an unmanageable length? A while back, you talked about work being done on Z-pool snapshots. Would this support resilvering? For example, remove an old drive and start resilvering, but one of the other drives dies, preventing this resilver from finishing. So, right, so the history question. The history is a ring buffer. So uh, newer things are going to push older things out, uh, and it will never grow beyond its its fixed size. Yeah, especially um, when you do a lot of... It is slightly deceptive in that the first couple items of the history, like uh, the pool creation command, is always always stays. So while it ages out stuff, the very first entry goes back to the beginning of the pool because it has information about when the pool was created or whatever. Um, but no, the, the history is not going to take up all the space. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head what the limit is, but it has a limited amount of space and it will not just consume the whole pool or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was less than it is uh, because, yes, the, the history on my pool is 640,000 lines. Mostly huh. creating and destroying snapshots constantly with hundreds yeah, of data sets. That will um, cause the churn. But uh, no, it will not slowly creep up and eat all your space. Uh, <laughs> there is a limit and it will respect that. Mm, that would be hilarious. I have all the space in my pool used up uh, for the so pool. So the Z pool checkpoint, which is different than a Z pool snapshot, um, would the support uh, So if you remove an old drive and start resilvering, and then another drive dies. Um, there's nothing a checkpoint can do. You've removed a drive already. <laughs> uh, hmm. So there's nothing a snapshot or checkpoint can do if, if you're actually losing whole devices. 
Yeah. This is why you should always use RAID Z2 or better. To have the redundancy there. Yeah. And if you are going to replace a drive, if you do an online replace where the old one and the new one are both online at the same time, then if another drive fails, you'll still be okay because you can finish the resilver because you have both the old and the new. You're not actually depending on the redundancy. Yep, that's um, both disks then. And yeah, since you're using it to, since 2013, it's already quite a while uh, as a pool history. And uh, you definitely have uh, some data preserved on that for a long time. And uh, it just stays there as long as you keep the redundancy and keep pushing in the disks, depending on how much data you stay on store. Yeah, so the Z-pool history can be a little deceptive uh, because, because the first entry is when you created the pool. Uh, you're assuming, okay, so it goes from when I created the pool and everything I've ever done is like, actually, no, it, it does have a limit. Uh, if you provide if, the if, option. Like if you look at the dates, I'm looking at mine right now. Yeah. Uh, the first date is uh, November 30th, 2015, and it has my zpool create command. The next one I have is ZFS receive from July 5th of this year. Yeah, there's, there's, there should have happened something in between, like zpool create or zfs create. Well, well, yeah, there's <laughs> many, many things that have happened in the meantime. And so while I have 640,000 lines of history, it's only covering the last three months. <laughs> yeah, so depending uh, on how and much. if you look at yours, you it'll be the same. Um, not sure if we recreated the pool or not. One second I think not. So I think this pool here should be my oldest one. Um, yes. The one that you have? Uh, yeah. Created November 28th, 2011. Huh. Uh, and the zpool history on that one, uh, the second line comes from uh, July 14th, 2017. That pool's not as busy, so it hasn't churned through as much. <laughs> mm. And it would be fairly easy to write a zpool history dumper that to dump everything out to varlock to have a history of really everything that happened on the pool, like a yeah, cron job um, or something. I think there's an event interface you could listen on to get all of these, but uh, yeah, you could dump it and dedupe yeah. it and whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's interesting looking at this because the device names aren't the same anymore because I've switched uh, HBAs since I created this pool. Yeah, and it survived all this and uh, moving from one system to the next and the history records it all. Just in actually, case there's some... One... No, okay, that one's only done two. Uh, I, I think I have one pool that's actually gone through three different HBAs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because history, yeah, from moving. <laughs> that's probably why the send commands are there. Okay, but that's pretty much it that we have for this week. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening, for sending questions, and keep sending this to feedback at bsdnow.tv, anything that you find on the web for BSD Now. In the future, we could cover it. And see you next week. 